Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. All right, we come to our last message on the book of Numbers. Final instructions and preparations. Have you ever been on ready to go on a trip? ready to do a job and someone says, wait, there's just one more thing I, I need to do. One more, one more instruction here. One more thing that you need to pack. Well, this is kind of where we are today now, where we are as we come to the close of the book of Numbers. Last week we read how this new generation of Hebrew children had fell into the same uh, sin as their parents by worshiping idols. They didn't plan on doing this, but were enticed by the foreign women who had followed the wicked advice of Balaam, who sought to earn the riches and the privilege that King Balak had offered him if he were to curse the Israelites. He was not able to do so, but he found another way to bring God's disfavor upon his children. Now in doing so, by falling and falling into this wickedness, they received the judgment of God's wrath that we learned as 25,000 Israelites died of a plague that day. Yet we also see that they were the recipients of God's mercy as the priest Phineas atones for their transgressions through his zealous obedience to God's word. The Hebrew children, as we've been learning through this process of going through numbers, they served as an example for our instruction today. As we came to understand that Satan, the opposition, the adversary of God, is very persistent in enticing and, in, and, and, in, and inducing us to sin. We fall that we learn that we fall into sin incrementally, step by step, very subtly. We don't take a, a big plunge naturally, new usually. And we also learn that all sin is idolatry. All sin, whether it's lying or gossiping or whether it's adultery or things of that nature, all of that is idolatry. It is self-worship. You're putting something above God. And the way to combat these truths and the temptation to follow the Hebrew children into sin is for you and I to recognize the power of the gospel to change hearts, to reconcile us back to God, to enable us to follow God as obedient children. So now this morning, as we come and close out our study of the book of Numbers, we find that the Hebrews' children's days of wandering the wilderness is finally coming to an end. Over 40 years, they've been wandering this desert. And Yahweh has charged Moses with giving them some last-minute instructions and preparations and reminders and promises as they are resting in the plains of Moab, ready for that one last push. So we're going to read today from Numbers chapter 33, verses 50. It's here on the monitor, but if you want your Bible as well, so you can mark it where we've been going through, is Numbers chapter 33. We're looking at verses 50 through 53. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan and into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out 
all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal image and demolish all their high places. Great verbs here. Demolish, destroy, disfigure. You take, take all these things out, drive them. Let there be no idol worship there in verse 53. And you shall take possession of the land and you shall settle in it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. Father, what a great promise. And we just thank you so much for the Hebrew children. Not for their failures, but Lord, what we can learn from them, from your word. And this here is, is so important for us to understand this morning. So as we close out this book, I pray that you would uh, enliven our minds, uh, give us and make us awake. Uh, let our spirits commune with yours. And Father, may we learn from you what you have for us this morning. And most importantly, may we respond and commit to your word and trust you more. We thank you for this opportunity as we pray. Amen. Now, as the next generation is preparing to enter into the promised land that their parents feared, as you might recall, would eat them alive. These men and women are ready to go into the land that, they, that their parents feared that they could never conquer. Yahweh reiterates the promise that he has given Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his children down through the generations. This is a promise of a land, of a national identity, prosperity, and the role of his mediator towards the nations. To do this, they are reminded they are, that they are to obey his commandments to the letter. And they are not to rebel against God's word and, and they're to resist the temptation to compromise. Now, if you say, boy, that sounds like the same words to you and I, you would be correct. Some of the instructions found in Numbers chapter 26 through 36 include the taking of the second census. You and I have to realize as we're coming to chapter 26, this is a whole new generation. No one, not one man from 20 years and older that from, was from the first census is alive. Except for Joshua and Caleb. They give them the laws to live by while they're in the land. We see that Joshua is commissioned to succeed Moses. As you know, Moses will die soon. He will not be able to enter into the land. We see a calendar of the public sac sacrifices that they are to observe. We see the battle against Midian as they get retribution uh, for the plan to seduce them into idol worship. We see that two of the tribes of Israel wind up settling in the Transjordan outside on the other side of, of uh, Jericho and of the Jordan. We see also, as we read that book, we'll see the boundaries of Canaan, the land that God had given them, the 12 tribes. And then also we'll see the cities for the Levites and also the cities of refuge. So there's a lot in those 11 chapters, 26 through 36, as we read through them. And we're not going to take time to go through all of that this morning. As I want to look at us as a whole as we come to a close. Though Numbers is filled <clears throat> with the exploits of a people from a long time ago, in a land far, far away, in a culture far removed from us, you and I need to realize that numbers is still as relevant to us as it was to the first readers of that Old Testament book. One commentary remarks that numbers shows the steadfast purpose of God, the steadfast purpose of God to fashion a people for himself who will display his image to the world and out of which his appointed savior will rise.
But we also see the unfaithfulness of his people put God's steadfastness, his faithfulness to the test. You understand that. You say this maybe to your children. Don't test me. You're pushing me too far. Well, this is what we're finding here with the Hebrew children. (coughs) And what we see is that the unfaithful members suffer God's punishment while the people as a whole are preserved and shaped. The Bible Project remarks that the central theme of Numbers is that God is faithful to his promises, but he will allow his people to walk away from his covenant and face the consequences. In other words, Numbers serves as if you're, wanting, if you're taking notes, you may want to under, uh, write this down. Numbers serves as a cautionary tale. It serves as a cautionary tale to the blessings and the judgments of God's children. Now, a cautionary tale is a traditional narrative. It could be a fable, a proverb, uh, an urban legend, some type of myth, things of that nature with a moral message. Kind of think of, of Ace of Fables in that type of regard. It's a warning of consequences of certain actions, inactions, or even character flaws. Many of you might recall from your studies that you're reading as a young person of King Midas. That's a cautionary tale demonstrating the pitfalls of unbridled greed. The man who could touch anything and winds up that would turn to gold and he touches his daughter and she turns to gold. It's a cautionary tale. Number serves as a cautionary tale to you and I today. The Apostle Paul informs his original audience in the first century in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. You'll see it here on the monitor. Look at this verse. He says, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our what? Instructions that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. Could you write that somewhere in your Bible, that portion of scripture, or go to it very quickly and underline it? This is an important thing. Just hold that up there if you would, Ben. Whatever is written in scripture in the former days was written for our instruction. That's why you and I are encouraged to continue to read even the Old Testament. Even as we are a New Testament church, the Old Testament is important for us. We do not unhitch ourselves, as one pastor would say, from the Old Testament. Because it's through that that you and I learn endurance through the race. You and I are on a journey much longer than the 40-year journey of the Hebrew children. But it's also through them that we find the encouragement of the scriptures. Why? So that you and I might have hope. And if with your permission, I'm just going to set a tent here. And I just want to talk real quickly to you personally. This world is looking for hope. You and I are looking for hope. But like that old country song, they're they're looking for hope in all the wrong places. We're looking for government to solve our issues. Give us health care. Give us equality in our jobs and equality with our finances. We're looking for politicians to come and save us from our our errors and our mistakes and our financial mistakes and our relational mistakes. We're looking for a a hope in which we can find um, pleasure and joy outside of God's, God's commands and promises. 
But here's the thing. That you and I have a hope. Not a wishful thinking, but a confident expectations. I think I've said that uh, multiple times through here. And I, I pray that you get it. Your hope is not a wishful thinking. One day I hope I will not hurt like I am hurting right now. One day I hope that I can be a better husband or a better father or a better wife, a better mother. It's not one day I hope that I can afford all the things that I desire. That's not the hope of a Christian. That's wishful thinking. And too many of us, me included, live our lives through fantasy, wishing our lives were different. But God says that you and I have a hope that surpasses. I'm going to take the peace that surpasses all understanding. I'm going to tell you that we have a hope that is the same way. We have a hope that will help you endure during the most difficult times of your life. And that endurance will give you encouragement because we are looking for something much greater than anything that this earth has to offer. That's why the apostle says, seek and set your affections on things above. You and I are to do that. We have a hope. And numbers serves to give us a hope that we have something greater than they do. And you and I will, and we do, and we'll see that here in a moment. The world is in need of a hope. And they need to understand that God is a steadfast God and he proves it and he shows it. But it also serves as a cautionary tale that there are blessings, yes, in the Christian life. But there is also a judgment, not condemnation. But there is the discipline of God to his children. This echoes what... Paul wrote in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and that was kind of our beginning passage when we started this, uh, uh, this series and it was what we read last week in our scripture reading. Paul says, now these things took place and he specifically referenced the book of Numbers when he writes this. These things took place as example and also Exodus, I should say, for us that we may not desire evil as they did. And you and I know that we live in a world that desires evil. You know yourself that in your heart there are times that you are desiring evil. And we ought to with humility and honesty say yes we do. I can't tell you how many times I see Christians and, and it's like, you know what, they're like Teflon. Satan doesn't affect them. Sin doesn't affect them. They are so holy that I just feel like I'm getting a sunburn standing and bathing in their wonderful light. Not that there aren't some Christians who have grown in maturity and who I envy, or not envy, I should say, but I would want to, to mirror in my life their encouragement, their, their hope for me that God can change my heart and lead me. But you and I need to realize is, is that we are not to desire evil as they did. He says, and then he goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 10, that these things happen to them. This seducing of, 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 of the, the Midianite women and getting them into idolatry. Their mumbling, their complaining, their lack of water, their desire for food happened to them as an example. For whom? You and I. Those of us who open up its pages and are ready and willing to read a book 
that says nothing many people believe to them, but it does. But they were written down for our instructions on whom the end of the ages has come. So with it, I'd like to share with you three things that you and I need to learn from the past, that we can learn from the book of Numbers. They're just going to be here on the screen if you're taking notes. The first one is that though all may participate, not all may finish. Though all may participate in the journey, not all are going to finish and finish well. In Numbers, we find that all of the men, listen to this, in Numbers, as you and I come to chapter 26, we find that all of the men, 20 years and older, that were delivered from Egyptian slavery died in the wilderness. Let that set in. Remember when we talked about the first census? There were 603,550 men. Look at the census at the end of chapter 26, 27. There's actually less of them. Over 600,000 men died in the wilderness. What began as a triumphal march out of Egypt, a miraculous crossing through the Red Sea, an exhilarating display of Yahweh's presence in the wilderness, ended with over 600,000 deaths due to their failure to confirm to God's law. Oh, they divided of diseases and plagues and just maybe old age. Well, they died because of their failure to conform to God's law. Their 40 years of wandering was due to their failure of confirming, of a fa failure to conform to God's law. Like Lot's wife, they constantly looked fondly backwards to the land of their slavery, for what they felt they had lost. Scripture describes their tendency to look back as a craving, and in their craving they rebelled against their deliverer and protector. And this rebellion was met with God's wrathful judgment. And you and I today many times are, are, are paralyzed with shame and guilt and an overriding desire for our cravings to be met outside of the promises of God. We desire that which God says is forbidden for his people, for all people, I should say. Pastor Doug Wilson tweeted out this past week. He says, you cannot have sin without consequences. I'm not sure, did you hear me? Let me, let me say this once again. You cannot have sin without consequences. Now, that consequences may not come as soon as, it, as you commit that sin. It may not come uh, within the next 5, 10, 12 years in the way that you and I expected. But sin does have consequences. He also goes on to say, and you cannot have great sin without great consequences. If a man, now he, now he gives this, this is the way that Doug Wilson writes, but listen, he says, if a man is a volcano, Something that's spewing out, right? Spewing out lava, spewing out fire and brimstone. And many of us are. Our sins just pour out from us. If a man is a volcano, listen to what he says, it is useless for him to complain about all the cooled lava down the sides. If you're going to erupt with your cravings, you will have a beholden on to you the lavas of sin. 
And many of us are struggling and tested in this life because of the consequences of our sin. Not our mistakes, not our foibles, not our just unhelpful habits we may have, but because of our sin. We must understand that. Now, not all of the Hebrew children crossed into the promised land. Even Moses and Aaron were forbidden to cross into land. Moses never once stepped into the land promised to his father, to his fathers. You don't want to make a statement regarding their final, destin- final internal destination. I'm not saying where they are today. I do not know. But we must consider the words of Christ, who warned in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And what's interesting, God does not then say, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. He says this. And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In hell, there will be people who cast out demons. There will be people in hell who did mighty works in God's name. There will be those who preached in God's name. But will not enjoy the blessings of eternal life. All may participate, but not all will finish. The Apostle John writes the same warning to the church in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, John says, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Hence the verse about endurance. But they went out. And why did they go out? The same reason these Hebrew children did not enter the promised land. Because it may be plain that they are not of us. The Apostle Paul warned in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Examine yourself, not non-believer, not you unredeemed sinner. But he's writing this to the church and to the Christians, to the believers, to the pastors, the teachers, the deacons, the elders. He says this, examine yourself. Why? To see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Are you aware of that? Unless indeed you fail to make the test. All may participate. There's here people here in this church that may be members. They may be teachers. And they're participating in the life of Christ and in the work of Christ. But yet they may fail to enter into the eternal gates and the heaven's gates. You and I must realize that. We must examine our lives with the same heart attitude of David who cried out in Psalms 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Is that your prayer in the morning and the evening? If not, you should make this a habit. Try me and know my thoughts. Use that verse before getting in the car and getting on the 91 and the 57. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me into the way of everlasting. Write that down. Psalms 139, verse 23. Is that your prayer? It should be. 
Psalms 139, verse 24 and 25, or 23 and 24, excuse me. Search me, O God. And let me tell you, the one who knows your hearts better than yourself will do a work that you will not believe when you truly pray that. So that all may participate, not all may finish. The second thing that you and I must learn from the past is we need to learn from their failures. We cannot make the same mistakes. We have all heard the warning that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul lists four sins that the Hebrew children craved that led them to rebel against God. And you and I saw this as we worked our way through the book of Numbers. There was idolatry in verse 7. There's sexual immorality in verse 8 of chapter uh, uh, 10 of 1 Corinthians. There was the testing of the Lord. They were continually testing him. And then we see the grumbling that continued. All of this is, idol- all of this is self-worship. Making themselves the focus. Paul's summary of Israel's sin parallels Psalms 106, where it says they forgot their God. They forgot God. They forgot their Savior who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. And thus they became unclean by their acts, And they played the whores in their deeds. God's blessing on Israel did not exempt them from God's judgment when they brazenly disobeyed God's commands and veered off into sin. The psalmist writes that then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his heritage. Paul wants believers to understand that flirtation with sin places them in mortal danger. You and I say, well, I don't want to marry sin, but you and I are, are flirt, flirting with sin all the time. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to go into there. Let's just get going. I just had a funny thought in my head. Sometimes I just think funny things in my head and I just got to pass. I realize it's not the Holy Spirit telling me to say it. You can ask me afterwards. It's a th- I can't get it out of my head now. So let me go back to my notes. I can't share it. Uh, Paul wants believers to understand that flirtation with sin leads to mortal danger or can lead to mortal danger. I have a message that I did for the men in the, uh, when we were up at Ironwood last year called Tribute. I, I've given part of it to you from time to time. You and I think that sin is like a yo-yo that we can play with. We keep it in our pocket and we play with it when we're bored, when we're tired, when we're hungry, when we can't get satisfaction from the ways God has promised. And we think that we can play with sin. I don't realize that it's filled not just with, with just fun, but it's razor blades ready to cut you up. You can't flirt with sin. God says it leads to mortal danger. And flirtation will take you where it shouldn't be. And you and I can take that analogy and put it in with a husband and a wife. And one of them begins to flirt. You, you can see what happens, the damage it can do. Yes, God has a calling. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. But you also remember that God has also ordained opposition in order to test and strengthen and shape us into the image of God. And so you and I, when testing comes, we must not fail. 
This opposition is persistent. It is crafty and it's subtle and it brings in and slips those in who didn't even know that they were near a muddy bank of water until all of a sudden they feel the cold splash. We must learn not just from the victories of our heroes. It's not just Daniel beating Goliath. It's your God, let me say David and God beating uh, Goliath. It's just not Daniel standing up to the king. It's not just the Hebrew children surviving the furnace. You and I need to realize that we must learn from their failures. David's fall into sin with temptation. Abraham's lying of who his wife was and is, followed also by Isaac who did the same. The failings of Peter who said, I will die for Christ. Ready, cut off a man's ear. But Yen wind up several hours later denying Christ three times. We must learn from our heroes, not only from their successes, but also from their failures. It's a sad commentary that every generation believes it must make the same mistakes on their own, not learning from those behind them. If you're a parent with children, you understand exactly what I'm talking about, especially as your children get older and you see them following in the same footsteps as you did. And you just want to grab them and say, don't do it. But yet we need to learn not from the mistakes of others, but from our own. That's just a folly. We believe that we can succeed. And here's the snobbery. Here's the pride is that we believe that we can succeed where they failed. Oh, I will know how to control it. I know where the soft spots in the, in the abatement are. I, I can cross that, that creek and just... Walk. A creek is, a, is a, a little flowing body of water, for those of you who may not know, with stones in it, and I can step in there and I won't get wet. Land and I love to do that. We love to go to this little Eisenhower Park, and one of the things that we like to do and this is, to be honest, as if you have a little boy, this is better than going to some of those little um, uh, playgrounds that they have, all the safety things that they have. We just like going over to Eisenhower Park and we climb up the hill and then run down, we climb the trees and then they have this little creek and we just jump the rocks. Well, that's good when you're six years old, but when you're 55 with creaky knees and a bad leg, let me tell you, jumping on those rocks isn't as easy as you thought you get up up there and say, oh i don't know if i can make that and I, oh i can do it he did it and next thing you know i'm i'm in the bank so it's always fun that's 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 for free by the way we think they concede where they failed only to find ourselves once again enslaved to a sin that we thought that we had under control or that we could control you got to learn from their failures that's what Numbers does for you and I. The whole Old Testament, but Numbers in particular as we're looking at that in our series. Number three, both blessings and testings come from God. Both blessings and testings come from God. This truth is displayed in a very vivid, descriptive way in the life of Job, who actually lived before these wanderers in the desert. Job lived about the time of Abraham. Many of you know the, the story of Job, so I won't belabor it. But he's the one who lost all of his worldly goods and his family in one fell swoop. One short day. Moment by moment. But even in his misery, he had the presence of mind and the humbleness of his heart 
to remark in Job chapter 1, verse 21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Can you join me? Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I don't know where you are today in your life, <clears throat> but as we read the book of Numbers, we see that these Hebrew children do nothing but grumbling and complaining against God's planning, call, and purpose for their lives. And so often, you and I do the same thing. In our scripture reading earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses teaches the people that you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. And why has he led them for 40 years in the wilderness? It says here that he might humble you. Now that's interesting. God has to humble a group of slaves. I mean, how much more do you think that they could be humbled? But you and I understand it doesn't matter where we come in life. All of us are prideful. Whether I'm one of the 1% or one of the ones that are not getting anything. We all are prideful. You hear it in the political speech. They should, there should not be any billionaires. Give it to me. I deserve it. That, maybe that's not fair politically speaking. Let's just go on. He had to humble these men and these women. And it shows that they had to because they complained. They murmured against God. All that he'd done and it was doing for them. They continued to complain. He says, why did he do this? So that he may humble you, testing to know. Listen to this. This is why God brings testing in your life. To test what is in your heart. So let me ask, in your suffering today, in your testing, in your pain this morning, what is coming out of your heart? I cannot believe that this is a message that's only five pages long and I may not finish. You and I have to understand that God brings testing to see what was in our hearts. Whether or not you would keep his commandments or not, and of course, they failed. The past was recorded with a view to the future. The past numbers, the journeys of the Hebrew children was recorded with a view to the future. So that you and I may look on them and learn. God's blessings and judgments with Israel are examples to all of God's children, even for you and I today. We as Christians today can reap the benefit of the experience of the past. The only question I have for you is, will you learn that all may participate, but all may not, uh, may, uh, but may all, not all may fail. You and I are to learn from their failures. And understand that both blessing and testing come from God. Scripture has encouraged us that the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit works to keep us, to protect us, to guide us, and deliver us to the eternal life that he has promised us. That hope that you and I have. New heavens and the new earth. We must trust that God is able to keep his promises and he is faithful to the end. 
We as Christians today can reap the benefits of the experience of the past. The Christian life is rife with hardship. Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who in it are many. For the gate is narrow, though, that is leads to life. And that way, he says, is hard. And it leads, though, to life. And those who find it are few. So you and I must learn these things. I pray that as we come to a close of numbers, as we've taken 10 weeks, this is our 11th week in our close, these previous 10 weeks, you have learned these three truths that you and I are to learn from their failures. Learn that God is testing us. So let me give you three things to do. Let me close it with this. There are three things that you and I need to do. The first one is we need to be careful of false assurances. You and I must stand in the faith, not have a misplaced confidence in our knowledge or in our, in our heritage. The Hebrew children began to take for granted their exalted position as Yahweh's mediators. Yes, they were called to be holy. They were called to be obedient to God's word. But even in that, they failed. And as we see in the New Testament, the Pharaoh's confidence was in the miraculous, or the Pharisees, excuse me, in the New Testament, the Pharisees' confidence was in their what? Was it in their faith? Well, faith in themselves. It was in their meticulous obedience to rituals and traditions. We must understand numbers in relation to where it is in the whole story of the Bible. We have something much greater than that they did not have. To them, it was in their obedience to rituals, to, to the sacrifices. But our salvation is not found in self-righteous works, nor is it found in our heritage. It is only found in the work of Christ. Bring your attention, I believe, here to the also as we go on. Pastor Burke Parsons reminds us of this. Now, there's this quote. I love it. He says, our assurance of salvation isn't based on our anticipated obedience. But the perfect obedience of whom? Our Savior. Are we saved by works? Yes. The works of Christ. Our works are the fruit of our faith. Not the grounds of our salvation, but if we have no works, we show that we have what? And that's what James is telling us. So I know some of you are going to come, wait a second. Well, it's by faith alone, right? Well, yes, we're not saved by, well, we're saved. We're saved by the works of Christ, not by our obedience. So where the Hebrew children failed, you and I are assured obedience because we are not judged by our obedience, by our works, but by the works of Christ. What is your assurance of your faith based on? What is the object of your faith? It must be in Christ. Not in yourself. Not in the church that you go to. Not to the pastor that you believe in. If that's in it, you guys are in big trouble. But you need to understand your faith must be in the person of Christ. So be self-assured. Not of yourself, but who your object of your faith is. Number two, you and I must resist the tremendous pressure to compromise. These Israelites, they would take one or two or a group of them, and then the other ones would fall in line into sin. 
And you and I need to realize that we live in a world that is always pressuring us to follow them into sin. Even you and I do it. We do it within our families, within our marriages, within our, with our sphere of friends. We, one falls and we all fall. We must understand that we need to avoid overt association with idolatry, which is self-worship. It's the root of all sin. It comes with a high price, though. And this is the price that the Hebrew children were not willing to pay at all times. So here's the thing. Let me give it to you. Are you ready to pay the price of following Christ? By ridicule, hatred, being ostracized politically and socially, financially. Are you ready to be canceled by the world because of your faith? Randy and I pray for each and every one of you on Tuesday. And I know, I think Landon joins with us and many others do the same. My prayer is that you will be found faithful. That you will count the cost of following Christ and say, yes, I'll bear the ridicule. I'll bear the hatred. I'll bear the social uh, ostracization. It is all worth it to obtain Christ. Pray that you do so. First Peter chapter 4, 3. I think I have a verse, do I not? Thank you. Peter writes this, For the time is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Does this describe us today? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Man, it's almost like Peter was living in the 21st century. He says, respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery that they, and they malign you. Now you and I know that you may have some friends that malign you and make fun of you and sometimes maybe don't even want you around because they know how you're going to act or you're going to say no. But I encourage you to stand up. You and I must resist the tremendous pressure to compromise in our faith. Why? Because when you and I compromise, we fail to hold up the light to those that need it. In other words, your hope is diminished. And he says to give the reason for the hope that is in you. Some of you are going through some difficult things. And when they see, when the world sees how you're handling the testing that God is bringing in your life, the test, uh, temptations that Satan is trying to draw you away, they say, how are you doing it? How do you get up every morning? How are you facing this so well? Let me tell you about the one who hung in the sun and the cross for me. He endured, so I endured. The same power that raised him from the dead is the same power that raised me to new life. And though this pain is sometimes overbearing, God gives me a comfort and a peace that I don't understand. And I put it into his hands. Number three. Trust in the faithfulness of God during testings and trials. Let's not fail in this. The Hebrew children failed for the most part. Though there was many that did. Joshua and Caleb for one. Or for two if you want to be specific. And many others. But you and I cannot despair, doubt, or be deceived about the faithfulness of God. 
God promises in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, I believe that may be up here on the screen as well. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. Period. Exclamation point. He's the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. In what ways this morning are you struggling with the faithfulness of God? There's a myth that says God won't give you too much to handle. Throw that out the window. God will give you way too much more than you can handle. For only and then can he come in and he be the hero of the day and come and make when you're weak, he is strong. Let us do it in God's strength, not ourselves. He's driving you to himself. He's shaping you. He's directing you. He's trying to help you see, hey, I'm right here in those testings, in those sufferings. I'm here. And let me tell you, if all you see at this moment is a dark space, if you see a little bit of light, but the darkness is overtaking that, direct your heart to God. Go to a Christian brother and sister, grab them by the hand and say, pray for me. I'm despairing. The testing is overwhelming. I feel that I may fail. And brother and sister, don't tell them that you're going to pray for them and then walk away. Grab them in the here and the now, embrace them, and with tears, would you pray a loving prayer for them? That God may strengthen them, lift them up, but most importantly, what can I do as your brother and sister in Christ? We can't take the pain away. We can't heal it among ourselves. All that we can do is love and courage and be there for them. Praying that when the testing is done, that they will stay strong in the ashes like a phoenix. Ready to comfort those who find themselves in the same testing. I had to close with this from James chapter 1. Would you read this out loud with me? Let's just do that. We don't do that very often. It's from James chapter 1 verse 12. Ready? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Do you love him this morning? Let's enter into that promised land that new heavens and the new earth, that God may be glorified and for our good. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. I want you to take a moment to pause and consider what was spoken and taught during this whole study in Numbers. Then I'm going to ask you to pray, God, search me. In what way are you talking to me? Is there a way in which I'm not trusting you? Is there, is there a way in which I'm not learning from the mistakes? Is there some way in which I'm, I'm in danger of compromising? Is my assurance of salvation based on someone or something that is different than you? If so, I pray that you do this last thing that we call is to respond. Respond to the Holy Spirit's work as he's working in your hearts today. Maybe it's grumbling and complaining. Maybe it is an idolatrous situation. Maybe it is, it is craving for that which is not. Maybe the testings of God right now seem so overbearing that you do not feel that you can take another step. Would you come to the cross? Would you come to the gospel? 
The one who says, I'll heal all your diseases. I will heal all your pain. And the hope that one day he will wipe all tears from our eyes. And that he will make all things new. Let us come before God, who is the greatest in all the world and all the universe. That we may learn the steadfastness and the faithfulness of our almighty, almighty creator. And to whom you and I are able to call Abba, Father. Father, I pray that you would work now. Do not let one heart walk out this door without some type of life transformation. I pray that you would grab a hold of the hearts and souls of these people, that they may come to know you. If there's any here that do not know you as Savior, Lord, that any who may not make it through the narrow way, I pray that you would open their hearts to your truth this morning, bring them into a loving relationship with you. For any Christian that is struggling, that is playing with sin, that is compromising or is in danger of doing so, Lord, I pray that you would just give them a heart attack in such a way that just changes their mind. Not a physical heart attack, I should say, but one in which their heart is made new with the love of God that shows itself in worship, that flows in loving obedience to your word. Then, Father, if there's any here that are bending under the weight of your testing, of your shaping and your testing of their hearts. May their hearts be true, be proven true. May they be strengthened. And Lord, you would give them the comfort that they may comfort others. For your glory, for our good. We all pray this in Christ's name. God's people said, Amen. Amen. God is good, is he not? Hey, big announcement here as we close up into our hour here. It's next week... <coughs> We're ending numbers next week. I didn't get a chance to really promote it as much as I normally like to when we have a new series. But we are going to be starting this, uh, uh, the Gospel of Luke. So we are gear in for a three and a half, four year journey as we work uh, bit by bit through God's word that's found in Luke's gospel. It's so often, I don't know if we're going to make it at the Christmas time, the Christmas story right on, but we're going to go through Luke and I'm excited about that. With that, so be with us here next week. I know that's coming at the end of a holiday. So I know you're going to be fat and lazy and uh, bemoaning whatever football games that you lost or won at. I want to encourage you to be here as we start this this all-important study in the Gospel of Luke. It's a great book. Uh, We're going to be challenging and I have a gift for everyone here next week. So make sure you're here to get that gift, all right? Let's stand if you would. Let's close. What's our song, Brandon? My One Comfort. Oh, my one comfort both in life and death is that what? I am not alone. Join with us as you close out in that song. By the way, happy Thanksgiving. God bless you. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.